welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we bring you a special hour on Haiti. Following the New York Times expose, where finally a mainstream media outlet finally admitted that the 2004 U.S.-led coup with the complicity of France and Canada against Haiti's elected president, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, was in part because Aristide had demanded restitution for the money France had stolen from Haiti. France had forced Haiti to pay for the loss of its slaves and for the cost of the war following the Haitian Revolution. There was concern not only by France, but from the U.S. and other countries who were complicit in the slave trade that this demand, if successful, would undermine their power. We speak with journalist Kevin Pina about those within Haiti who helped to not only lay the basis for the coup, but who then objected to Jamaica giving refuge to President Aristide and his family following the coup. Um, regular Sojourner Truth listeners may recall that President Aristide was kidnapped in 2004 and flown to the Central African Republic where many feared his life would be at risk. So much so that Congresswoman Maxine Waters flew to the Central African Republic to get President Aristide and his family out of that country and back to the region. But these NGOs and some individuals objected and appealed to CARICOM to oppose uh, this. This, all this, as Jamaica was under tremendous pressure from the United States not to give refuge to President Aristide. Note, and we dig more into who is Jean Breton Aristide, the first democratically elected president of Haiti. His work when he was a Catholic priest before being elected president and his connection with the long history of the Haitian people's struggle to complete their 1804 revolution, their struggle for democracy and justice. Our guest is Pierre Labossier, co-founder of the Haiti Action Committee. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Five people are dead after a gunman carrying a rifle and handgun killed four people at a Tulsa hospital and then himself, according to police. Here's Tulsa's Deputy Chief of Police, Eric Dagnus. The officers that did arrive uh, were hearing shots in the building, and that's what directed them to the second floor. Um, right now, we have uh, four civilians that are uh, dead. We have one shooter that is dead. And uh, right now, we believe that is self-inflicted. Officers have not been interviewed, but we're certain that's a self-inflicted gunshot wound on his uh, part. 
Wednesday's shooting on the campus of St. Francis Health System was the latest in a series of deadly mass shootings across the U.S. in recent weeks. The recent Memorial Day weekend saw multiple mass shootings nationwide, including at an outdoor festival in Taft, Oklahoma, 45 miles from Tulsa. The Gun Violence Archives reports 233 mass shootings this year. It's the 12th mass murder this year. The white man accused of killing 10 black people in a racist attack on a Buffalo supermarket that he live-streamed has been indicted by a grand jury on a state domestic terrorism and hate crime charge that would carry a mandatory sentence of life in prison. 18-year-old Peyton Grendon, who has been in custody since the May 14th mass shooting, is scheduled to be arraigned today in Erie County Court. Gendron had previously been charged with first-degree murder in the shooting, which also injured three people. He has pled not guilty. House Speaker San Francisco Democrat Nancy Pelosi says the Judiciary Committee will be considering sweeping gun control legislation today. She spoke at a gun control rally in her district marking the first day of Gun Violence Awareness Month Wednesday. Raise the age to buy weapons of war, which is we call some of these guys, from 18 to 21. That age was recently reduced in Texas and that's why an 18-year-old was able to buy that gun. Restricted access to ghost guns. Thank you, Mayor Breed, for being a leader in the country. Outlawing high-capacity magazines. Why do they need so many rounds in a magazine? Outlawing that. Banning bump stock sales for civilian use. The bump stock. And then cracking down on gun trafficking. Pelosi says next week they'll be taking up legislation for red flag laws that would allow authorities to remove guns from people deemed a threat to themselves or others. Nearly 20 states have red flag laws. Pelosi's also calling on the Senate to pass H.R. 8, a bipartisan bill that would toughen background checks for gun purchases. The Senate, though, is unlikely to take up any of those bills. The measure provides Democrat lawmakers a marker to show voters their efforts to curb mass shootings this election year. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia now controls one-fifth of Ukraine. Luhansk's governor says Russia controls 80 percent of Syrvodonetsk as it's come under heavy Russian bombardment. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is defending its new $700 million package of military aid for Ukraine. It includes long-range rocket systems to help the nation defend itself against Russian attacks. Russia's blasted the military support as an escalation that could widen the war. Pacifica's Christopher Martinez has more. President Joe Biden formally announced a new $700 million military aid package. Russia has blasted the move. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov calls it deliberately pouring oil on the fire, saying the U.S., in his words, is obviously holding to the line that it will fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. But Secretary of State Tony Blinken dismisses Russian complaints that the weapons are an escalation. It's Russia that is attacking Ukraine, not the other way around. Simply put, uh, the, the best way to avoid escalation is for Russia to stop the aggression and the war that it started. He says the Western position was clear even before Putin invaded, and Putin should have seen it coming. There was no, no hiding the ball. We've been extremely clear about this from day one, with President Biden communicating that directly uh, to President Putin. So we have done exactly what we said we would do. Blinken was joined at the news conference by Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, the head of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. The military alliance is considering applications from neutral Finland and Sweden to become members. President Putin wanted less NATO. He is getting more NATO, more troops, 
and more NATO members. Reporting for Pacifica Radio News KPFA, I'm Christopher Martinez. The United Nations says Yemen's warring parties have agreed to renew a nationwide truce for another two months. The announcement is a glimmer of hope for the Arab world's most impoverished country, plagued by eight years of civil war that's been called the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Head of the World Health Organization warns the pandemic is far from over. Dr. Tedros Adhanom cautions while global COVID-19 infections are down, they're on the rise in several areas. We do see concerning trends in several regions. Reported cases and deaths are increasing in the Americas, while deaths are also increasing in the Western Pacific region and in Africa. The WHO also says the coronavirus outbreak in North Korea is getting worse, not better. The Biden administration says it will forgive all remaining federal student debt for former students of the for-profit Corinthian Colleges chain. Under the new action, anyone attended the chain from 1995 to its collapse in 2015 will get their federal student debt automatically canceled. The action will erase $5.8 billion in debt for more than 560,000 borrowers. It's the largest loan discharge in education department history. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Slavery was abolished in Haiti 60 years before the United States because of its successful 1804 revolution, a revolt of enslaved Africans against France, led by Toussaint Louverture and Jean-Jacques Dessalines. The Haitian Revolution of 1804 played a major role in inspiring Latin America independence from Spain, South America. American liberator Simon Bolivar couldn't have led battles against Spanish colonization without help and aid from Haiti. He was given refuge in Haiti on several occasions. The Haitian Revolution also played a role in the Louisiana Purchase, a huge swath of the United States uh, expanding, greatly expanding U.S. territory. Uh, U.S. and other slave owners and wealthy landlords across the Americas were afraid that enslaved African people in the U.S. and throughout the region would participate in a revolution like Haiti. And indeed, there were revolts, uh, revolts across the region in the United States States, as well as in Barbados and Grenada and many other of the Caribbean uh, islands. And indeed, it was the Haitian Revolution that led the way for the ending of slavery in the whole of the Americas. Now, what you hear, and Haiti has paid a, a heavy price sense. And we're going to dig deep into how all of this came about. Today, the people of Haiti are facing down um, the U.S. um, backed dictatorship of the PHTK party that came into power through fraudulent elections of Michel Martelly in 2010 and maintained its grip on power through the fraudulent election of Jovenel Moïse in 2016. Many have questioned that election and referred to it as a selection. Uh, both elections were held under um, UN occupation and, sp- and supported by the US government. And meanwhile, it has been 10 months since the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moïse. Haiti is also one of several countries facing a combined force of climate shocks, 
conflict rising costs and the lasting effects of the pandemic. According to the UN World Food Program, 1.3 million people may be living in an emergency situation. That number is likely conservative. Um, and we also hear um, day after day, the drumbeat of the violence of so-named gangs. Uh, in Haiti. And meanwhile, the Biden administration continues to deport uh, Haitians back to Haiti, some of which flee the country uh, by vote, by boat, taking uh, their lives at risk uh, back to that country. Many say it is a double standard by the Biden administration. But to just set the stage uh, for us, let us go to a clip from France 24, um, by where one of the writers uh, of the New York Times series is being interviewed about it. Let's go to that clip now. Uh, before we went uh, to Westminster, I was talking to the New York Times reporter who uh, wrote an investigation on the root of Haiti's misery. I'd like to go back, uh, if you will, where we were talking about uh, Haiti paying debts to France that sort of end resulted in the country uh, where it is uh, today. Let's talk about what that meant for Haiti, the fact that it had to pay its enslavers. What did it mean for its own progress? Well, I mean, the first thing I think, I think we need to remind that uh, is that Haiti is the only country uh, where former slaves paid their former masters, right? This is a unique case in history. Um, in terms of economic development, um, we managed and we spent months uh, finding, tracking the payments, and we found that Eddie paid France in total 112 million francs, which today amounts to $560 million, right? But just that uh, amount does not reflect the impact on the economic development. So we worked with 15 economists to try to analyze what was the long-term effect of those payments uh, over more than six decades. And we found that uh, over two centuries, those payments represented a loss uh, that was from $21 billion to $115 billion. That is from one to eight times uh, its GDP in 2020. So that is quite a big loss. Apart from that economic loss, you also have to remember that this debt completely disrupted uh, the process of building a state, of having enough money to invest in schools, in bridges, in uh, hospitals, right? And those are the kind of investments that pay off in the long term. So that is, you know, a debt that really has long shadows on the process of building a state in Haiti. And has there been any official reaction from the government here in France to your report? Not at all. No, no reaction. Um, I have um, sent uh, emails to the Elysee Palace and to the French Foreign Ministry about that, but I haven't heard from them. Because a lot of countries, uh, I'm thinking about Jamaica, for instance, are asking or in the process of asking for reparations from the United Kingdom. Haiti, has there been former presidents of Haiti who've spoken about rep reparations, even though this technically isn't reparations? This is Haitian money which was paid to France, to French former slave owners. Right. Um, there was one president, Jean-Bertrand Aristide. He was uh, the president of Eddy in the early 20th uh, century, in the early uh from uh, 2001 to 2004, where he, when he was ousted from power. Um, Aristide in 2003 uh, demanded that France repays uh, Eddie, 
um, and France really did not take it well. And this is what we show in our report in the fourth uh, chapter of our series that France worked quickly to stifle the calls of uh, restitution, as uh, President Aristide was uh, calling that. Uh, they sent a commission that had a, an unofficial uh, mission, basically, which was uh, to dismiss uh, the calls. And then as Eddie basically uh, plunged into a violent political crisis, President Aristide was accused of violating human rights. Um, the U.S. and France um, set up uh, some sort of an operation to send Aristide in exile. Until now, the U.S. and France always said that this was not uh, a removal. This was not uh, overthrowing Aristide. But we have a French ambassador who told us that what happened that night of February 29, 2004, when Aristide was put in a plane and sent into exile to Africa, amounted to a coup. Right. And then when I ask him about uh, the link, the possible link between the demand of Aristide about reparations and what happened that night, he said that it was probably a little bit about that as well. And finally, uh, Constant, the French bank that lent Haiti this money back in from 1825 onwards, do they still exist today? They do. They do. Um, it's the Crédit Industriel and uh, Commercial. This is a bank that is owned by a larger one, which is called the Crédit Mutuel. And um, on Monday, the Crédit Mutuel uh, published a statement saying, following a report saying that they acknowledged uh, that uh, past, you know, they realized that the CIC uh, had indeed its foot in Eddie, and they said that they would finance some historical research into this uh, past, which they said was quite sad. Constant, thank you very much uh, for thank joining you. us uh, here on France 24. And if you haven't read it, please do The Root of Haiti's Misery, Reparations to Enslavers. Right. And hopefully many of our listeners uh, have, in fact, read that New York Times series. I'll have to say that a number of us know and have known for a long time, as have Haitians on the ground, uh, what was exposed in that series. Um, it was useful, though, that uh, the New York Times actually found uh, some of the hard documents in relation to the money, banking, etc. But let us welcome our guest now, Kevin Pina, who is a journalist who's uh, lived in Haiti for about a decade and uh, who regularly covers uh, Haiti, in particular for Flashpoints, which is uh, heard on Pacifica stations. He's a filmmaker, he's an educator, and he serves as a country expert on Haiti for the Varieties of Democracy Project, sponsored by the University of Notre Dame Center for Research Computing and the University of Gothenburg Department of Political Science and the Helen Kellogg Institute for International Studies. Kevin Pina, welcome back. Thanks, Margaret. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you just fine. You can, also, you can also add to that that now every Saturday for the past year, I have a new show, the only bilingual English Creole language program that's beamed to Haiti in the diaspora throughout the world called Decantacion on RadioCajo.com with my co-producer, Fran Jerome. Every oh, Saturday. That's, that's great. Please send that information on to us so that we could update um, your bio, Kevin, would appreciate that. So, Kevin, no surprise to you, of course, um, the expose in, in, in the New York Times, not to focus so much on the detail that uh, that they give, some of which we've been covering on these airwaves uh, for quite some time. 
But what there's a story that a lot of people do not know about, um, you know, in the lead up to the 2004 coup, let's just go there first, the 2004 coup, there was such a drumbeat of negative information about President Aristide, accusing him of everything and being the son of God, considering he was a, a, a former priest. And uh, what a lot of people don't know is that also within, and, and also the CIA was busy training um, forces in the DR to fundamentally invade Haiti and to displace uh, President Aristide. And within Haiti itself, there were some foreign funded NGOs, some intellectuals, et cetera, who, well, I can't even say unwittingly, they must have known because they knew what the US and the State Department and the Western media was putting out. And they were also on the ground calling for Haiti's, um, for President Aristide's removal. And some of them even went as far after the coup of uh, appealing to CARICOM not to allow President Aristide and his uh, family safe haven there. By the way, that statement of the Haitian organizations that are members of the Assembly of Caribbean People is on the letterhead of an outfit called Gra Grassroots International. I'm looking at it right now. Kevin Pina, what was going on on the ground with these NGOs and these intellectuals? Who are they? There were a couple tendencies. Um, there were those who were funded by USAID, the United States Agency for International Development, who began to really penetrate Haiti in 2001, after Aristide had been reelected in 2000. There were several allegations that were made that the election for the parliament had been rigged. It turned out not to be true. There were only seven contested seats out of the entire parliament. Aristide had tried to make concessions on those seats, had tried to hold new elections. And at the same time, while there was this so-called political crisis in Haiti, they were screaming, crise politique, crise politique, a political crisis from the rafters. And all of it was to create this atmosphere of destabilization, tying up Aristide's government in negotiations with an opposition that could not win at the ballot box, but who were supported by United States funding through USAID that had begun to penetrate women's organizations, peasant organizations, other grassroots types of organizations through funding. And largely what they did was they immediately cut out any group that was uh, close to Lavalas, which was the movement of Jean-Bertrand Aristide, and only began to fund and pump money tons of money, millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars into those organizations that would declare themselves publicly in opposition to Aristide and his government, building an opposition through funding, grassroots funding on the ground. While the US was doing this from one direction, the government of France was doing the same thing from another direction in alliance with the government of Canada. CEDA, the Canadian International Development Agency, did a similar thing in Haiti, and it begat and it promulgated organizations that were on the so-called left organizations. I think you're referring to PAPTA. That's <laughs> who so you're really referring to. I'll just put it out there. You're talking about Camille Chalmers and, and PAPTA. Absolutely. And how they were funded by the Canadian International Development Agency, how he became the louder he screamed about Aristide the Dictator. The louder he began to parrot the line 
of the Canadian government, of the French government, of the U.S. government, the more funding he received, including being flown to Canada and becoming the darling of organizations, uh, as you had said, organizations like Grassroots International who played a very duplicitous role when it came to supporting certain voices in Haiti that were more closely aligned to U.S. foreign policy, Canadian foreign policy, than they were to the interests of their own people. Now, at the same time, France was doing a similar strategy. They had created a, a grassroots group from whole cloth of artists called the Non Movement, N-O-N, which means the No Movement. And it, it was intellectuals, who considered themselves francophonie. You probably heard this term francophonie, right? It means aligned to the idea of the French colonial mindset, right? Uh, sort of rejoicing in that connection to the colonists, who in this case were France, who had slaves, had used Haiti, you know, as had enslaved Haiti uh, for many years, which goes back to that issue of restitution. Uh, and reparations. But the point is that they had this group called Non of, of leading artists and intellectuals who were of the Francophonie movement. And that included Michel Martelly, who was part of that organization. At the same time, they worked with French and with uh, with Haitian intellectuals who spoke French very well, and they would bring them to France. At the same time, they would send people like Regis Dupre and other leading French intellectuals to Haiti to to put pressure on Aristide to resign. Of course, Aristide was a democratically elected president. People should know that those elections in 2000 were the only elections ever funded by Haiti itself. When Haiti was so poor and could not depend upon the international community, they largely funded the elections of 2000, which brought Aristide to a second term of office themselves. Now, all of this, of course, leads to 2003, where it all really reaches a point of climax when Aristide demands that France returns more than $23 billion, which he calculated at that time, in restitution or reparations for the money that Haiti was forced to pay France and the slave owners when Haiti won its independence. I still have my button, by the way, on my T-shirt, because there were massive demonstrations in the streets in 2003 where people were heeding Aristide's call. They were, they, were, they were regularly marching and protesting and embarrassing the French in front of the French embassy, demanding that France repay this debt. So Haitians were clear and mobilized in 2003. And the louder their voices got for France to return that debt, the more vociferous, the more, the more deadly became the strategy of the US, France, and Canada when it came to cultivating Haitians to join in the chorus against their own people, to join in the chorus to overthrow the government of Jean-Bertrand Aristide. Yeah, well, that is, is, is quite something. And uh, Kevin, looking at the statements, um, and, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, now are, you know, likely concerned and, and confused because some of the organizations um, under the umbrella of Grassroots International are ones that are well known to be doing uh, good work. They're known in progressive circles uh, here. And uh, Camille Chalmers, as, as you mentioned, I, I actually someone 
someone just that's, said that's, me. All, that's always the problem with trust fund babies posing as socialists, you know? <laughs> right, right. You know, all this radical talk. But uh, Kevin, someone just sent me uh, just yesterday uh, some quotes from myself and also the late activist in the Caribbean of, of Guyana, a colleague of, of Walter Rodney and Daye, um, criticizing him and Papta at the World Social Forum that we were all together in, right. in Venezuela and really calling him out uh, back then. Um, but you're, you're, talking about, the, you're talking about Camille Chalmers. I'm talking about Camille Chalmers and and Papta because looking at the um, the the press release or whatever that they put out calling for President Aristide to basically step down or, or to resign. That was about a month or so before the, the 2004. Well, you know, it, goes, it goes even further back than that. Yeah, it, it goes back to a lot of these same so-called white leftists in the U.S., who were critical of Aristide after the return from the first coup in 1991, who completely misread and misunderstood the terms under which Aristide returned. They called it a bow to the United States foreign policy that Aristide was being returned at the head of U.S. troops without any understanding of the complex negotiations and ultimately how Aristide would turn around and betray the Pentagon when he had, and 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 abolished the military, which infuriated them, infuriated the CIA. How Aristide would then go after certain networks of the CIA who'd been funding the Haitian military, who had overseen the transition from the Medellin cartel to the Cali cartel, transforming Haiti into the major transshipment point of cocaine to the United States, and how the Haitian military had been on the payroll of the CIA for more than a decade, Aristide went after them, and the CIA has never forgiven him since. And it's no accident that if we go right after the assassination of Jovenel Moise, almost a month later that the New York Times deems and calls and labels Haiti a narco state again. So there's a direct line from the first coup of 1991 all the way through to Jovenel Moise's assassination, if we look at that history carefully. But again, my main point is that a lot of these same so-called white leftists who today are supporting Camille Chalmers were also wrong about Haiti in 1991. They, they, they've labeled Aristide a traitor. They said that he agreed to come in and institute neoliberal neo reforms in Haiti, and it simply was not true. What he had done was played a very careful game to get back into office because that was the most important thing. And then he slowly but surely attempted to distance himself from U.S. foreign policy. And ultimately, this would lead to a big break between him and, and the CIA and a big break between him and the Pentagon and the U.S. State Department. Uh, they considered that Aristide betrayed them. Now, if you flash forward to today and you look at some of those same folks, these are the same folks who are supporting folks like Camille Mares who get it wrong again. They consistently get it wrong because they're, well, we can say they're being misled, but I think it's really a lack of analysis and a willingness, uh, unwillingness to look at the complex situation, to understand the complex situation that was actually going on in Haiti this day. They want their politics easy. They want they think it's as easy as choosing the closest Haitian voice to them. And it's not. That's how you make mistakes in movements. 
Right. And, and Kevin, it's what I have personally been calling um, an, a kind of imperialist solidarity. Um, you know, a, a kind of a, a, a yeah, you know what I mean? And, yeah, and I know it really exactly has to be called out because it really is causing a problem in the movement where a lot of very, very good people who want to do the right thing, including, I'll have to say, the some of the, the organizers of this alternative summit of the Americas that's coming up in uh, Los Angeles. Angeles, just um, a, a week from now that, that we are on, on the air, it's unlikely that, uh, I would hope, I hope it's unlikely that uh, most or some of the summit organizers know the background of Camille Schaumers. I understand that he and Pop, that they've been invited to speak to the summit participants about Haiti. So the summit is an important event. It really is calling out a lot of the crap that the U.S. has been oh, doing. But we, 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 we got to say yeah. it's, more, it's more than just, the, the, just playing a role in the coup. The real dangerous part of this is the role that Kami Chalmers, Papta, and one, one of the other signatories of, of, uh, for Papta on the um, letter that they wrote demanding Aristide's resignation a month before the coup d'etat uh, was signed by Andre, Andre Wainwright. And Andre Yves Wainwright would become the Minister of the Environment under the La Tortue regime. And wow. at the same time, Camille Chalmers and Papta would become apologists for the intense murdering and killing and deaths that were going on. He had aligned himself, Papta had also aligned themselves with the National Coalition for Haitian Rights. And the National Coalition for Haitian Rights was working overtime on propaganda to demonize the Lavalas movement. Because remember, when Aristide was overthrown in 2004, it wasn't just Aristide. There were more than 7,500 elected officials who were thrown out of office in that coup. Well, where were they? They were in Haiti and they were hunted down. They were demonized. Many of them were murdered. You know, and at the same time, there were massive demonstrations demanding Aristide's return that were being ignored by the so-called left, while Kami Chalmers was still screaming about the evils of Lavalas and Aristide and justifying the slaughter in the streets. That's the biggest black mark on Kami Chalmers and Alex Wainwright was not just calling for Aristide and, and, and working with U.S. foreign policy and Canadian foreign policy to overthrow Aristide, but it was the justification of the slaughter after the coup that I can never forgive. Right. Well, well, Kevin, we are basically going to have to leave it there, but, you know, we're going to have to dig a deep a bit deeper, you know, into this and, and have you back because we know that you, you know, you, you were there, you've covered this stuff, you have the footage, et cetera, of, of what was going on. So, you know, you're very much an expert in this particular area and just want to send a message to our friends on the left, including some of the left parties, to look again at what they are doing. You know, all of us, I firmly believe, a colleague of mine said a long time ago, we're all responsible for the points of references that we choose. And in this case, um, we have to do it. And I'm very, very sorry uh, to be able to, you know, to have to bring this information out, but the truth must be told. Uh, we can't, you know, hide behind ignorance any longer. And we are really hoping that uh, some of our friends there will uh, will come around and see the error of and their the, ways. And the, great, but, the greatest act of solidarity is to choose carefully who you work with. And you do that based upon very conscious 
understanding of a situation. Anything short of that, you should not be involved in solidarity. You're doing more harm than good. Right. Well, on that note, Kevin Pino, we are going to have to leave Thanks it so there. Thank you for your work and thank you for joining us. We hope to speak with you again very soon. Thank you. We are going to take a short station break and then coming up, who is Jean-Breton Aristide? Why is he so hated by the United States, the Western powers that would do just about anything rather than see his movement and party Lavalas in power and also um, disparage by some of our friends on the left? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Pierre Leboisier will be joining us. going to chase those crazy ball heads out of town. By the way, the party now in power propped up by the U.S., the PhDK, they are known as the ball heads because a number of them, for some reason or the other, shave their head. That's not to disparage anybody with a shaved head. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at so True Radio, And we're heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. We'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the San Francisco Bay Area, the whole of the Bay Area of California. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners. We have quite a strong following in France um, of Sojourner Truth. Um, we're now going to continue our special on Haiti. And uh, many of you might have uh, seen this expose of the, the New York Times on the what happened uh, with Haiti. And part of the reason, a key reason why Haiti is the most impoverished uh, region in the Western Hemisphere, and how uh, President Jean-Bertrand Aristide, the first democratically elected president, was vilified by Western powers, a coup orchestrated against him uh, when he called for reparations. Uh, let's find out a bit more about him. I'd like to go now to a clip. Uh, the first part of it is an introduction uh, to uh, President Aristide when he spoke at uh, Stanford University. These clips are historic, okay? Um, and we want to thank the Pacifica Radio Archives for uh, sharing them with us. Terry Carl, who is the director for Center of Latin America Studies, she introduces um, President Aristide. This was during the time of the first CIA-backed coup against um, Aristide when he was forced to leave the country. And then uh, uh, another, the following clip is we will hear our beloved Blaise Bompain, the late Blaise Bompain, who for decades did a show on KPFK. Blaise interviewed uh, Jean-Berton Aristide before he was president when he was still a Catholic priest. So let's go to both of those clips right now. Even in his early years studying abroad, 
in his early years preparing himself for the role he now plays. The man who is affectionately known as Titid by his followers reportedly never changed his watch from Haitian time when he was living in Italy, when he was living in Jerusalem, and when he lived outside of Haiti. He wanted his watch to be a constant reminder of home. A priest expelled from his order for his belief in liberation theology, a scholar who speaks English, Spanish, Portuguese, German, Italian, Hebrew, French, and Creole. Huh? <laughs> You're hearing that. <laughs> a musician who plays the saxophone, the clarinet, the guitar, and the organ. A composer of over 100 religious songs, an author of several books, and the survivor of several assassination attempts. Aristide is above all the voice of the poor in Haiti. Hello, this is Blaise Bonpain with Focus on the Americas. Today I'm very pleased to have as a guest Father Jean Bertrand Aristide, a Haitian priest who has been revered and who is revered by the people of Haiti as a prophet. Oh, welcome, Father. Very happy to have you here. We haven't heard much about Haiti. Could you tell us about your work in Haiti? Well, there in Haiti, I am working as a priest with poor people. We are teaching love, justice, but of course, we don't want to cheat, to teach with words without putting what we are saying in practice. That's why we are trying to build community where we can share life, where we can fight to get justice, because in fact our country has such bad structures, corrupt structures, which cannot give us justice if we don't fight to get it. Why were some 50 people killed in your parish, Father? In our parish on September 11, 88, we were celebrating Mass. And where we celebrate Mass, that means for us, we celebrate what we did as love shared. And we have force from Jesus to continue to do it. So it's not a kind of uh, meeting to meet people. It's a real meeting with God, with Jesus, through brothers, through sisters, through poor people. And rich people, I think, they got afraid when they saw how poor people could get together and to ask for justice. I think also the hierarchy was a bit afraid when he realized how in the church poor people could celebrate their life, giving their life, sharing life when they were asking at the same time for justice in front of the silence of some of the bishops. This is looked upon as a threat to those in power. Well, in one sense, yes. But we should say, in other words, when Jesus was trying to 
sheer love. They didn't love him. They hate him. And that happened to our community. Once a community, Christian community, wants to share life, really give his life to those who doesn't have life, that can make other people unhappy. Happy are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake, for yours is the kingdom. Yes. Uh, indeed, uh, this is a long-standing uh, tradition of uh, crucifixion and resurrection. Uh, what will be the response of the Haitian people to this kind of oppression? Well, before answering the question, maybe I should say to those who are listening, in one word, what happened there? We were celebrating Mass on that day, September 11, 88, and a lot of people came. They killed more than 50 people in front of me. Meanwhile, we were singing, we were trying to get together, and they killed so many people. The army was there around the church. He doesn't do anything to stop killers. And of course, you can realize how was this tragedy. Finally, they burned the church. So that happened just two years ago in our city. It was about 10 on the morning. And who is responsible? I think in Haiti, we have a kind of colonization where at the same time a lot of poor people are trying to get together to change their heart at the heart of those corrupted structures and in front of them you have a small group of people they have economical power religious power and they don't want to us to live with them around the social table. I mean, they are on the table. We, the majority, 85 until 90%, we are under the social table. When we want to sit down around the table as brothers and sisters sharing love, peace, justice, living so in real democracy. These uh, Tonton Makut uh, are sound to me similar to the death squads of El Salvador or of Guatemala and other countries. Uh, is it a similar situation? Yes, it's a, a similar situation. And unfortunately, I have to say the American government is guilty. They, they are guilty. I'm not talking about American people. I'm talking about American government. For instance, President Bush said, when they hear the voice of Haitian people, democracy will be a reality in Haiti. We are asking for justice. Mm -hmm. Those big Tontomakut killed a lot of people on November 87. They killed a lot of other people in massacres. And we are asking for justice. Meanwhile, 
what they do, anything. They are still free in the streets, killing people, giving insecurity, day by night. What I'd like to do now is to welcome our guest, Pierre Lebossier. He is uh, on the show um, quite frequently. You know that he is a co-founder of the Haiti Action Committee that has been around for about 30 years now. Very, very well-respected um, advocate for democracy in Haiti here in the United States, but also he's very, very well-known and loved on the ground in Haiti. Pierre Lebossier, welcome back. Pierre, okay. you you heard the clip I just played in, and just tell us a bit because President Aristide was who became President Aristide when he was a priest was describing the attack on his church. Um, tell us, you know, a, about that, and and also a bit about what you know about the rise then of Aristide from a liberation theology priest to be elected president, the first democratically elected president of Haiti, Pierre Lebossier. Thank you very much. And I also want to say hats off to Kevin Pina for his, um, and, and to you as well for the presentation that you made. Uh, president Aristide is someone been who the people of Haiti love very deeply as a love and respect, as a great, great brother of ours. He's never betrayed the Haitian people, contrary to many, to more politicians who say one thing and then do something else. As a matter of fact, President Aristide was uh, drafted to run for office and pretty much forced to run for office by the people of Haiti. They say, no, brother, it's not what you want that to do for us. And that trust continues to this very day. You know, I wasn't in Haiti. I'd left Haiti in 1970 under the dictatorship of Papa Doc Duvalier, Dr. Francois Duvalier, known as Papa Doc, the brutal dictator. Oh, growing up in New York at the time, um, being part of a generation that, that was mobilizing for better Haiti, we were not knowing where the, where the better days would come, but we were fighting for better for uh, to have a seat at the table, as President Aristide says. And so what happened was when courageously President Aristide started uh, in his sermons uh, at this, I would say Father Aristide at the time as a Catholic priest in the church of St. Jean Bosco. I was living in California and someone told me that there is a priest named Father Aristide who you should listen to. And cassettes were, at that time it was cassette tapes were being sent and people were sharing, and, uh, and, and we, could, we admired his courage for bringing all of those points out. Now, Baby Doc was overthrown in 86, and the movement for justice continued with President Aristide as being one of the most vital uh, spokesperson for liberation theology and explaining the problems of the country. And he was challenging the military dictators who when Baby Doc left, Baby Doc passed them the baton to run the country within the, in the overwhelming presence of the US administration. And so President Aristide, Father Aristide kept our spirits up. He kept us being focused on the needs, on, the, on our dreams for better Haiti. And so there was a program placed by the people's movement in order to make Haiti better. And that's when uh, people, went out there massively, overwhelmingly elected President Aristide. Even that 
uh, election process was a struggle because the elections that have been taking place prior to that were were pretty much um, a show, a media show, just to show there were elections, but the people had already been handpicked. Um, who would be president who of the what became the parliament, but the House of Deputies and what have you. And this is what has been going on since the coup of 2004. We have gone back to the elections under the Duvaliers, to the elections before that were with the support of the US, various US administrations. There were show elections, but not really, because all the, the presidents and everybody were handpicked and um, put in office. And that's what happened with the last election that you and I were were in the time. So President Aristide, once he got into office, uh, now President Aristide, he started implementing, not just um, living off promises, but implementing the program that was put into place by the Haitian people, pressing the issues of education, healthcare, clean drinking water, support for our farmers, our peasant farmers, support for them, and really putting the country into a, a, a space on the rails, really, of development from within, letting us young Haitians know what Haiti had to offer us, the riches of Haiti, both in terms of cultural riches and also mineral wealth and everything else. So the space was for the development of Haiti. Um, and, and Haitians started coming back home. Haitian refugees were coming back home. Many of us who had been refugees, and here I'm using the broader term because we were chased out of Haiti by the, uh, not only the dictatorship of the Duvaliers, the political dictatorship, but how it impacted the economy and the, the dictatorship over the economy by a small little group of oligarchs that dominated Haiti and Duvalier was working. And all of this, as you mentioned earlier with friends, uh, Canada and the US, at to, they were ripping off profits of out of squeezing Haiti, using that oligarchy to squeeze Haiti dry. And so there was a, a movement really to change this, overturning the system. And this is the movement that continues to this day. So listening to President Aristide speak earlier and, and the and the various clips that you played, really it's the same what we have seen since the coup d'etat of 2004 has been a return to what the Haitian people had already rejected before with the overthrow of the Duvaliers. And, uh, and that's been reimposed on that since the bloody coup d'etat of 2004. And, um, but this time it's continuing. So we've had 18 years of a United Nations occupation, very bloody, very repressive, brought about by the activities from of the US, France, Canada, Brazil as being the leader of the, um, of the military force. And in addition to that, we had the various Asian intellectuals, people like Camille Chalmers, people like what you call uh, the, the filmmaker, Raoul Peck, being the, among the so-called intellectuals who were talking to the left or the progressive movement outside of Haiti to make this coup appear. It, it, it's as if the leaders of the population and even the progressives, those were phony progressives who were being a face for the coup d'etat that France, Canada, and the US with Brazil 
uh, joining to be part of it um, and implementing this to this day. They are seeing today with the death squads uh, out there killing our brothers and sisters with what the Haitians call insecurity and against which they are, they've been mobilizing in order to bring that to a stop. This is what's going on right now. And it's important that the truth be told, that people know that who are you in solidarity with? Because too often we've had people who are part of the coup, again, the Pabdas. Uh, we've had also people like Shatis uh, of Mouvement Paysan Papay. All of these people were under the umbrella of convergence democratique, which was something that racist, uh, the late racist Senator Jesse Helms had put together in order to people's movement, in order to destroy La Palace. But at that time, during the election of 2000, these were free and fair elections at which the people's movement, President Aricid and Formula Valas won massively, overwhelmingly. The coup d'etat of 2004 to put a stop to this and to revert it back to the dictatorship of the Duvaliers. And uh, people need to stop being confused. And when I say people, I'm talking about people in the US movement. They, start, they need to stop taking this um, cap out that, oh, hate is complicated. There is nothing complicated there. It's very clear. On the one hand, you have the people's movement. This is, and they've made their voices on the ballot box, massively overwhelmingly elected from Milavalas again and again. They've been very much, they are being killed for standing up, just like they were killed in 1988, in 1987, uh, 1988 at St. Jean-Bosco Church, a community that continues to be receiving those um, brutal treatment by the, by the death squads allied with the Haitian police, uh, put together by the US, France, and Canada, this reign of terror all over Haiti, where land, the land of the peasants is being taken over. People are being chased out of their lands. People who have homes are losing their homes to these people. And so what you, what you are seeing is that situation that is continuing to unfold. So we need people who really choose their references, as you love to say, Margaret, and really know who and be in solidarity with the people of Haiti as they are trying to overturn this odious system. And Brotty really is our brother, and I use that term um, as the people of Haiti use it. He's our dearly beloved brother, and he was very courageous, who stood up and demanded and let us know that no, Contrary to being told when we were going up that Haiti owes friends, it's friends who owes Haiti money. Yeah. And so um, President Aristide has allowed people of my generation to raise our head in dignity and be proud of our culture, be language Creole. The, the, he is the first Haitian president to address the UN consistently in the Creole language, which, which we were taught to be ashamed right. of. So, so, yeah, like 
Pierre, thank you for that. There's so much more that we need to expose here. I have to say today's show was breaking news, was a breakthrough. I'm glad to be a part of it. Um, but Pierre, we are out of time. We're going to have to leave it there, but we'll be continuing this conversation. Thank you, Pierre. Thank you also to Kevin Pina. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. Gary Baca is our board op for today. You're going to stay tuned for Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Thank you so very much for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, you all stay well and safe, and Haiti must be free. Thank you.